there's um, um, some words that are often uh, used, just a very short uh, words that are, are often used um, on Remembrance Sunday and on uh, occasions where, where we stand and remember or and remember in silence or just afterwards. It's usually spoken by uh, somebody who is from the armed services or has been from the armed services. And it's known as the Kohima Epitaph. Um, when I was reading, reading up about it, I read, read actually, though, although that's its name, it's known, it's existed a long time before then. And the words are, when you go home, this is, the, this is somebody who's at um, a, a graveyard or a, a cemetery or a place of remembrance, which is away from where we are here. And the words say, when you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. It's always one of those that gets you about here, really, just to me. Um, so, you know, we are, it, it, the theme, really, of remembrance is one um, of sacrifice and recognizing people's sacrifice. Could you put up the first slide, Colin? So I was thinking about what words um, uh, I have in mind. You know, when we're doing Remembrance Day things and, and we're buying poppies, uh, we're uh, taking part in silences, we're, we're taking part in the prayers, we're hearing the readings. What words come to mind? There's actually loads, yeah? Um, loads of words. These are just a few that I came up with. Maybe you could come up with some other ones uh, yourself. Uh, feel free to shout them out now or any time in the future or just uh, agree with those. And I thought that maybe um, thankful or thankfulness and gratitude were probably quite similar really. But I li- it occurred to me, I like the word gratitude because it sounds like attitude and grateful, grateful attitude. And we kind of like things with attitude, particularly when they're a good attitude. Yeah. So that's some of the things, um, some of the words that represent things that we're saying. Can anyone tell me where this is? We saw it in the video earlier on. Yeah, we've got one. We've got another one. Where do we think it is? Another one. Where do you think it is? London. Fantastic. Well done. Do you know whereabouts in London? You're right. You're spot on. Brian? On the Strand. I don't think it's on the Strand. Fiona, where do you think it is? Whitehall. That's where I think it is. Whitehall Strand, okay, Whitehall. It's definitely in London, and it's definitely in the area called Whitehall, and it's just around the corner from Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament. And when we, I don't know if you saw um, the news on TV or the web last night, um, or sometime today, when when you see the pictures that come from there, there will be pictures of things happening around that monument in London. Because London being our capital city, Uh, That's actually kind of in the area where a lot of the civil service, the administration of government goes on. Um, And that uh, was constructed. It wasn't constructed immediately after the First World War, but shortly after the First World War. And we tend to think that kind of immediately the First World War ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Um, uh, things got into remembrance gear straight away you know, the, the following year. In actual fact, it took t- a few years to develop into the form that we now use now, the tradition that we now use. And of course, they were, they were then uh, kind of like augmented, uh, uh, became even more important with the Second World War and subsequent con- uh, conflicts. And what we'll see in the pictures on the news... Um, are important people, the royal family, members of the government, political leaders, uh, actually taking part in a ceremony. And as we were observing our silence, so they will have been observing a silence there. Yeah. So it's, it's the monument. Can any t- anybody tell me what it's actually called? It's got, a, it's got a really weird name. It's got a strange name. 
Yeah, a few people know. Cenotaph. Can you put it up? Yeah. This is a strange word. I think it's a strange word. You know, it's not like sock or bread or wheelbarrow, is it? It doesn't kind of like look English, really. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's the word cenotaph. So when I was thinking in my list of words, you know, uh, cenotaph wasn't the thing that just jumped on, on my mind. We've got another picture of it. Can you put it up? That's a slightly different angle of it. And it shows the words on the side here that were mentioned in the video we had earlier, uh, uh, a memorial to the glorious dead. Next slide, Colin, because I want the word with it. Yeah, so I just want to wonder why you would call a monument a cenotaph. Now, there are some very, very well-educated people in this congregation, I know, much more clever and well-educated than I am. Does anybody know why the cenotaph is called the cenotaph? Oh, really? Are you got Jack? Say again. Oh, I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say. I think some people do know, but they're just being modest. Next slide, Colin. Cenotaph actually means empty tomb. Yay! I didn't know this. Didn't know this until I had to do this service, and I thought I better look up some stuff. And cenotaph means empty tomb. And if you really want to know, I'm, I'm quite interested in where words come from and where how words are used now and where they get where they get, end up being used in the future. Uh, and it comes from classical Greek, and the classical Greeks got it from the Romans. Yeah? So the Romans, the same Romans who uh, seemed to uh, conquer and govern the, most of the known world in the time of Jesus and the disciples, um, had this idea. They pronounced it slightly differently, but yeah, cenotaph. They had an empty tomb. And they had the idea of an empty tomb being a pointer to the fact that people had died in wars and conflicts somewhere else. That was the idea. And our cenotaph, that picture that we're just looking at, actually is an empty tomb. It's not just a block of stone that looks rather grand and imposing and makes you think. Yeah? Um, it actually is an empty tomb. And it points to the other tombs and graves and places of death and sacrifice um, we have, we know the tomb of, well, many of us know, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey. And in, when you see royal weddings nowadays, as the Queen Mother actually started a tradition, when you go in, in grand churches like, like Westminster Abbey, something that I find a bit weird at first is you walk over gravestones and memorials, you walk on them. Quite a few of us find that a bit strange, yeah? But anyway, that's the way they do it. And the Queen Mother, our current Queen's mother, so we're going back quite a while now, but out of respect... When she was a bride and was, going to, was, was being married, she didn't walk straight down the aisle. She took a deflection and said, I will not walk over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Okay, so the soldier is actually buried there. We don't know who that soldier is, but that's in memorial of them. So the cenotaph points to a location like that, and it also points to places like uh, Flanders, other places in France and Belgium, and all over the world, really, where there are people who, the bodies of people buried who gave their lives and sacrificed to us. But, yeah. Oh, she put, yeah, yeah. As Jack's rightly, rightly pointing out, the, the respect um, is such the Queen Mother, when she came back down the aisle with her, what do they call the posy bouquet? Yeah. 
Yeah, she placed it on, on the tomb, yeah? So marks of respect, really, um, can be pulled into nice things, into good celebration occasions, and it's not something we just have to do once a year, something we can, we can integrate, yeah? But, of course, if we're thinking of the, of the meaning of cenotaph being empty tomb, where does, that, where does that take your thoughts? Where does that take your thoughts? Put the next one up, yeah? This isn't the actual empty tomb that Jesus left after Easter. It takes my thoughts straight to Easter, yeah? Um, uh, the resurrection. Um, this is a reconstruction, okay? But, hey, it looks good to me. I mean, I'm, you know, we haven't actually got a photo of the, of the real, the actual uh, empty tomb. Um, but there's a reality in uh, the idea of an empty tomb which is really really important yeah. remember I was saying about the words of the Kohima epitaph when you go home tell them of us and say for your tomorrow we gave our today yeah. this wasn't an empty sacrifice the fact that we are able to meet freely to worship um, to commemorate, to look back, the freedoms that we have and enjoy um, in our civil life, in our private life, in our communal life, crucially for us in our spiritual life and our collective worship, they have been gained and sustained and enabled by the sacrifices that human beings gave, ordinary human beings, men and women like you and me, who actually did what we now observe in times of terror when there are terrorist things happening there are two kinds of people there's a majority of people who follow the correct advice which is to go away and there are sacrificial people who go towards it to deal with it yeah empty tomb that's human beings but empty tomb in Jesus's case we've got a view another view of the imagined view of the empty tomb really important there because what we are thinking about at times of loss and sacrifice, we can, when it comes to Easter, we rightly go through uh, a period of thinking about Jesus' suffering, his loss as a human being, the only sinless human being ever, and that led to his resurrection, and everything that that enabled. So what we have at these times of remembrance and thinking about empty tombs is times of enabling. We are enabled now to express ourselves, to do things, to worship, to pray, to talk to other people about our faith, to build each other up, to build ourselves up. We are enabled to do that because of the society we live in, because people gave a sacrifice. As Christians, the empty tomb means that we are also empowered by Christ because his tomb is empty, not because it's pointing to something else, but because he actually rose again um, and was, uh, was and is resurrected, uh, a very real presence to us and to all those who suffered um, and because of the sacrifices they gave. And I just want to think of those words again. Remember the words we had up? Yeah? I'm going to remind you of them in a minute. But one of the words was heroes. And quite often we refer to people who consciously, deliberately, not spontaneous, necessarily spontaneously, but 
consciously put themselves in danger and were willing to sacrifice themselves for us. We call them heroes, don't we? Yeah? You've heard of it. I've also got a box of chocolates at home called heroes, but that's another thing completely. And nothing heroic about them at all. Yeah? But heroes, we know what I mean. There's organizations like Help the Heroes and things like that. Yeah? Where else do we encounter heroes? Where else do we encounter heroes? In stories. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can you think of any heroes in stories? I'm particularly looking at, at you youngsters. Any heroes you have in mind? Oh, Ben, top marks. You, you, you're going straight to the top of the class because you go straight ahead. Yeah. Say again. God? Yeah. Another one. I think you don't want to say, yeah. Ethan? Batman. Batman. Okay. Iron Man? Okay. Simpson? Yeah. Superman? Batman as well. Whoa. Great. Yeah. Batgirl, thank you. Yeah, all for it, all for equality. So, Supergirl is another one I'm getting. Yeah, you get where I'm coming from, yeah? The idea of people being heroes, uh, of actually um, uh, representing us, enabling us, protecting us, acting for us, yeah, um, is, runs through both the realities of war and conflict, but also it's what we tell, we tell ourselves in stories. Okay? Next slide, Colin. Anyone ever seen this? I would just point out that it's coming up to a time when presents are bought and given. Okay? Um, and as I was thinking about heroes and those real heroes, those real heroes in conflicts and wars who've, who've given for us, that actually... We, we, we surround ourselves, we are in amongst them, Ben said, we are in amongst hero, heroes and heroic action. Uh, I, I tried to uh, blow up this picture that's on this, uh, this hoodie here. Next slide, please, Colin. I can't get it much bigger than this. But can you see, we didn't, who, who have we got here? Can you help me? Who's sat around the Jesus figure there? Yeah? Who's, who have we got? Hulk, thank you. The incredible Hulk. Who's sat next to Hulk? Is this Captain America, is it? Yeah, yeah. Then we've got the, we've got the white. Yeah, upside down Spider-Man. Then Iron Man. And is this Thor? Is it? Yeah, yeah. So you can get this on T-shirts and hoodies. Uh, there is a um, you get it from several companies. So I'm just saying, if uh, you know, if you want a Prezi, that's uh, that's a thought for you. And. I don't know if you can see right from the back, but the, the word uh, bubble that's coming out of Jesus' mouth is, an, and that's how I saved the world. Yeah? So we have stories, we have narratives of heroism and sacrifice. I would just like to point out, I feel I have to, I know you're all clever and intelligent, I know you all get this, but some of these people represented here aren't real. <laughs> yeah? But one person is real. Okay, you can work it out. You work it out for yourself. Yeah. And let's think about Jesus in terms of sacrifice and in terms of um, what he could have done. And what's the difference between Jesus's, well, there are many differences between Jesus's real narrative of heroism and the fictional heroes. 
What do the fictional heroes do when they're faced with evil? They fight it, yeah. They use their strength and powers and all this. And it's often a very long, dramatic story as to how they come. But what they have to do is to be more powerful than the baddies and the badness which is um, uh, afflicting them and afflicting us, yeah? Jesus did the same thing. His, he was more powerful, but he had a different way. Can you remember what Jesus said about if somebody hits you? Turn the other cheek. Okay? Listen, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. So this is not to condemn war. This is not to say that war is necessarily a wrong thing or a bad thing. There are, that, that's debates for other times. And they're important debates to have. We must never, ever silence those debates. And on a day when we think particularly of sacrifices given... I don't want to be misunderstood for saying that anything that's happened in the past or is happening in the present is wrong. We respect and honor the sacrifices given. But as Christians, we have to be trying to follow Jesus' way, which is preventing the need for those sacrifices to be given in the future. And it's not easy. It's to love people who want to do you harm. We said it actually in one of the prayers there. It's to actually... Uh, wish blessings on people who want to do you harm. So if I go back to the words we had before, same words there, respect, gratitude, heroes. But as the people who wrote the epitaph said, there is another way. They look to tomorrow where, you, where people don't have to give their lives. And that's what Jesus actually uh, calls us to do as well, is to look to a today and tomorrow whereby... We are always, on days like this, remembering and respecting sacrifices given, but we are aiming to make them not necessary in the future.